what is meant by all, what is meant by scripture, what is meant by God-breathed, the abnustas, um, and then furthermore, once you start defining those terms, you're going to run into problems. The Bible and Inspiration, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser, and I am here once again with my two friends, Jim Durkin. Evening. And Michael Harden. Hello. And if you're still with us this week, that means we mustn't have completely blown you out of the water last week with the uh, the heavy but yet interesting topic talking about the scriptures. And, uh, and some of the perspectives might have been kind of new to some of you out there. And uh, we're going to continue on for the next couple weeks on this topic because there's so much to unpack. And this week, we want to start with the scriptures that have to do with the the inspiration of scripture. I remember when I was back in high school, being in a, uh, a high school Bible study, uh, we, ha- we had a Bible club on campus, and I remember a friend of mine sharing uh, one week in that Bible study meeting, and he said, he said, you know, people get all um, uh, defensive about against the Bible, and, and they say, well, how do you know that's true, or how do you know the Bible is accurate, or how can you defend the scripture? And he said... He said, the Bible is like a sword. You don't defend a sword. You just swing the sword. And so then he, he quoted scriptures like 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly, fur- uh, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so he was saying, you just swing that verse out there because you don't need to uh, defend the Bible or, or justify anything it says. You just use it. <laughs> And so that was my philosophy for many years. Um, and so we're going to tackle this, um, uh, uh, verses like this one. Um, what about the scripture being inspired? Um, is all scripture inspired by God? Is the scripture, like we talked a couple weeks ago about uh the the passage in Judges where where uh, the, I forgot the guy's name, but he he sacrificed his daughter. You know, is that inspired by God? Um, you know, what about casting lots to decide uh, if uh, Achan should be uh, should be burned at the stake? Is that inspired by God? So so we're gonna jump into this. Um, so. What do you guys think? Um, is every scripture inspired by God? How do where where do we go from here? <laughs> I think we're both hanging back. Who's going to be first to go jump for it, in? <laughs> uh, I w- I I will see your story, uh, Lauren, and raise you. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, this is the game I, we're playing, huh? Yeah, I I, I remember I as a I remember as a kid having a Sunday school teacher one time saying that all of the Bible, not all Scripture, all of the Bible, from table of contents to maps, is inspired by God. <laughs> the maps even wow i like the ones where it shows paul's missionary contents. journeys yeah <laughs> well i knew the table of contents was because you know people when they first get saved they can't find anything so they look at the inspired table of contents to find out where to go <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right michael help us out yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so um a text like this that could be by um, persons who are not students of Scripture, and I'm including here um, uh, most Christians in that category. They're not actual students of Scripture. 
They haven't learned the original languages. They, you know, haven't gone in and learned the history and the culture and the background. That, that's what I mean by students of Scripture. Like uh, the Jews would refer to rabbis. Okay? They're not better than others. They're just students of Scripture. That's all. So students of Scripture would come to this and they would say, well, the first problem you're going to have right off the bat is, number one, definitional what is meant by all what is meant by scripture what is meant by god breathed the abnustas um and then furthermore once you start defining those terms you're going to run into problems so now here's what the average christian does based on the protestant reformation and these views of the bible that are not even a part of the Bible, they're actually anti-Bible, like inerrancy and infallibility or anti-Bible. They don't let you see what the Bible's trying to show you. Um, but um, first of all, the Greek text itself is ambiguous. So with pasagraphe, you can ha have, it can mean all scripture, um, but pasagra in, 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 in the sense of a set. Second, because it's in the singular, it could mean every scripture that is inspired by God is useful for. So let's acknowledge just straight up that we have one of two possibilities for translation. When we ask about all, we're asking a question about the Jewish canon. Because the New Testament canon has not been formed. So the writer cannot be talking about the New Testament. We can exclude the New Testament from this conversation. He could only be talking about the Jewish scriptures. But what is the all? Because in, in Second Temple Judaism, there was not a single canon. Different groups had different canons. The Pharisees had the Torah, the prophets, and their oral tradition. The Sadducees had the Torah, their written Torah, their codified Torah in the temple. Um, uh, you had the Samaritans with their own version of Torah. You had the Essenes that had the Torah and, and the prophets and some other writings that aren't even in the Old Testament called the Pseudepigrapha. You know, you had some groups that would have had the apocryphal books as part of their canon, others not. So there are multiple, multiple canons. So when he says, oh, what, which all? You know, uh, the 36 books that, you know, uh, post-Second Temple Judaism finally recognized. I mean, Ecclesiastes uh, is still up for debate in the 120s in Judaism. You oh, know? wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, it took 200 years, for, 250 years for the New Testament canon to form. Right. Just, you know, so what does all mean? And, um... And then you get to that strange word, theopneustos. It's to be found nowhere else in, in that we know of in Greek literature or papyri or anywhere. It's a coined term. The writer coins it. He makes it up. So we don't have a precedent for it. We can't go back and say, well, here it's used this way and here it's used that way. We are really left guessing. Huh. So far about what it, to say God breathed. Okay. Um, the word inspiration is not the best translation because that takes us back to, uh, in the Latin term, inspiritus, inscribing the Holy Spirit within the text. The, the text is inspired. The Spirit is in the text. Well, Protestants actually do believe that. That's why they go to, to the Bible to, for devotions to encounter the Lord. But we are reminded by Jesus in the fourth gospel that you can search the scriptures all you want, but you're not going to find eternal life in them because they bear witness to he who alone is eternal life. You see? So I just want to say I wouldn't want to build my faith upon a text like this where I had to have, you know, absolute you know, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and then try to base it upon this text? No way. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a foundation that crumbles.
you know. Now, let me just ask you this. Our writer in the pastoral epistles, so I, I, for me it's not Paul, but it doesn't matter. It can be Paul for you if you want it to be. Uh, this writer quotes the Greek Old Testament, right? The Septuagint. Yeah. So is he, when he says all scripture, is he referring to the Septuagint? And if so, is he referring to the books in the Septuagint that aren't in the uh, uh, Masoretic uh, textual tradition of Rabbinic Judaism? Like the Apocrypha? <laughs> you see? Um, and second, and, and to, to add to that, you'll go back just a few verses to verse 8. And he's talking about um, opponents and the kinds of nasty people that are out there. And he says, as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. Mm. Oh, these men who also opposed the truth, men of okay. Janus and Jambres. You go back to the Hebrew text, mm -hmm. and it's just two guys. That's good. Septuagint, a couple of guys. But in the Targumic tradition, the Aramaic paraphrases, there's where these guys acquire the name Janus and Chambris. So what is he's using a Targumic textual tradition. He's citing the Septuagint. No New Testament writer outside of Matthew really cites the Hebrew Bible. So you drive a theory of inspiration from this, but then why do Protestants immediately say it's the Hebrew text that's inspired of the Old Testament? Mm -hmm. That's that's antithetical to the way the New Testament writers engage that. Why not say the Septuagint's inspired, like the Greek Orthodox Church does? Right? And so now you're trying to you're trying to add that into this. Right? And you can't. There's no, it doesn't fit. And you can go further. And you can say, okay, God superintended the all. And it's called the canon, the Bible. Right? But even then, Christianity's had different canons, and the canon of the Catholic Church, which is has a larger, longer history than that of the Protestant one, has an, another, you know, number of books that ours don't have. So how anybody in their right mind would try to build all of that, and then you want to try to talk about the problem of throwing inerrancy into this? Oh, my <laughs> Lord, have mercy. Add cyanide to your arsenic and blow yourself up with a stick of dynamite. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, you raise so many great questions and make yeah. so many strong points that it's like you have to just be – totally putting your fingers in your ears and covering your eyes to just to just take that scripture at face value and and accept it the way that it's it's been presented to us you know all these years um because when you look at that you're right it's like like you said he's using the Septuagint and so we most of our translations don't they usually go to the Hebrew instead of Septuagint mm -hmm. and so right there you're going okay now wait a minute that raises a huge question like you said and then and then like you said he quotes the whole Janus and Jambres thing and I'm sitting there going well unless he's counting the movie Prince of Egypt as being you know part <laughs> of ins inspired scripture um, that runs into some issues too um <laughs> And uh, and then uh, there were numerous issues you raised that that really blow holes in that whole um, in in that whole perspective. And I really like how you said that if you take that scripture, that it you and and just based on that scripture, you're going to develop that whole doctrine of of inspiration. You you really are standing on something that crumbles. Because like you said, I love how you said the Catholic Church has a much longer history with the Apocrypha before the Protestants even came along and said, no, it's out. Yeah. And, and then that creates a whole nother realm of problems. So if you really re – okay, if you're really going to be honest about that scripture and, and believe all scripture is inspired, then every Protestant right now needs to go out and get a Catholic Bible. Because you just threw out the scriptures that were in there when that was put in the canon. So if you don't have a Catholic Bible, you already are completely dishonest to that scripture. So you really don't believe it. You 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 believe it according to how you want to shape it. So it, it opens a can of worms. What do you think, Jim? 
Well, I I think what you're saying is is right. Not not the part about going out and buying a Catholic Bible, but <laughs> it's it's you know subjective to how you read it. And I I, I know years ago I heard and and I've Michael I've heard you uh, say this also. Um, tonight you said it just a slight bit differently, but uh, that one interpretation of that is all scripture inspired by God, or you could say all scripture that is inspired by God. Yes. And, and, um, that puts a whole different emphasis on it there that, and, and the emphasis is, is that the word and the spirit have to agree. And sometimes charismatics have a, have a habit of going off in, well, the spirit told me this. And and they get, you know, they get out there. Let's put it that way. I can say that because I'm a charismatic, maybe a recovering charismatic. I'm not sure. But Bible literalists can get just as weird in, you know, well, the Bible says this and therefore, you know, and, and there's no spirit mixture whatsoever in it. Uh, the letter... Uh, kills the spirit gives life and if you don't have the two that are per that are blended together in a harmony where there's an inspiration of the spirit on the very thing you're reading all you're ended up with is letter the other thing i wanted to say that, is that that is very important the correlation okay. of word and spirit yeah i a few months ago, I got a copy of the Septuagint with the Apocrypha, and I've been reading it, and I've been enjoying it, except the, the, the weird thing about it is it doesn't say anything like what my Bible says, <laughs> my handy King James Bible, you know, at least on the, you know, on all the themes that I've built sermons on in the past and I go back and I read it in the Septuagint and I'm like hold on there Andy this is not what it says here you know it's like uh you know and and then the other thing is and Michael you would understand this is I go to try and find things in the chapter and verse that the King James is in and the Septuagint isn't it's not there in that chapter and verse. <laughs> no, no. There's a lot of extra material in Septuagint. A lot of, uh, yeah. And, and and in a whole different order. You know, um, what is it? Uh, the big one everybody likes, Jeremiah 29, 10 or 11 or whatever. You know, I know the plans I have for you, you know. Right. You, it, it doesn't say anything like that, and it's not in the Septuagint, Jeremiah 29. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, really? So, Interesting. No. It's like in 48 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, you, I, I guess I'm exposing I haven't read the Septuagint. <laughs> well, I, listen, you know, I think you'd enjoy it. Studies is its own discipline. They have their own scholars. Um, they're continuing to produce. Um, more and more updated work on the Septuagint. It's really, it's an exciting field of studies this last 30 years. Yeah. Wow, that, that that's pretty interesting, though, because it, being that that's the one, as we've established on previous podcasts, that that's the translation that the early church was using, and, and the, the writers, the apostolic writers, were going off of, um, not the translation, the, 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 what they were reading, um, and, that, and would, seeing... that would be true of Gentile communities or Greeks, predominantly Greek-speaking communities, but Jewish communities, at least within Palestine, would have had the Targumic tradition in the synagogues. Okay, oh. okay. okay. So, so even then, there wasn't like this subtle thing of this is what we're all reading. Right, right. So that that even blows holes again in in the whole thing of there's this this one book that we're all just sticking to, and so it it, it really brings us back to to Jesus. Well, it, it does, but again, we have to really think through this definitionally, okay? Okay. Because um, 
it would be anybody could say they're Christ-centered. Anybody can say that when they sit down to Scripture, they pray to be filled with the Spirit, okay? But if your Christ, if your view, your portrait of Jesus that you're given by your church tradition is really very incongruent with Jesus of Nazareth, the historical figure, um, you're, first of all, you're not going to see that. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to assume that your Christ-centeredness is actually referring to the Son of the Father when it's not. It's referring to an idol. Sort of looks like Jesus in some ways, but in other ways doesn't. Still an idol. Okay? Yeah. I'm really leery when people say to me, I have a Jesus-centered interpretation. I just sit there and go, who's Jesus? And if the reply is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, if it's anything other than that, then I know that their Jesus isn't going to look like the Jesus of the New Testament. Right. And and that's a a really important point, Um, just because of having spent the last 10 years in the Bible Belt, um, you see all kinds of churches that say, we are holding to the Bible, we have a Jesus-centered interpretation, and yet their Jesus, their Jesus is even conflict with one another. <laughs> and yeah. so it's like, wait a minute, if, if, we're, if we're all saying, like, like Jim and I, if we both go, we know Michael. And and mm-hmm. we start talking about Michael. We might have different perspectives of things we've had conversations with you about, but we're gonna, there's going to be a general consensus about what Michael is like. If if you've got like all these different churches, and they're saying we got a Jesus centered interpretation, and and you've got conflicting views. You've got violent Jesus. You've got ang- you've got you've got coming back to beat everybody up Jesus. You've got you've got all these different perspectives. And and they're not even in agreement with one another. You you have to pause and go. That, that we have a problem here. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's a really good point you made, Michael. That that um, just saying it's kind of like the thing with love. Just saying we've got it doesn't mean you've got it. Right. What would an example, Michael, uh, be of a um, in your mind of a, a Jesus that is an idol that is not. Um, yeah, any, any Jesus. Yeah, any attempt to portray Jesus as other than a pacifist, any attempt okay. to argue that um, he justifies anger and retaliation and revenge uh, okay. is an idol. So he's the Prince of Peace today, but he's coming back the Prince someday, of Peace and he's going to be, yeah, yeah. Kicking butt and taking names. Yep. Yeah. Good. I wrote a song once called, Why is Jesus Always Coming Back Pissed? <laughs> right. And, and what's funny is I remember sitting in many services, They, you know, we would hear all the terrible things that are going to happen when Jesus comes back. And then they would try to convince us, but it's a good thing. You should be happy. You should be looking forward to this. Yes, yes. It's like telling me, okay, your alcoholic dad is going to come home and he's going to trash the place. But yes. you should be really looking forward to that. You should be really happy about that. Yes, that's right. Well, it's, it's going to be a good thing because everybody that you – um, love in the Lord, but don't really like, are all going to hell anyhow. So, <laughs> right, well, you can well, stop loving them at that point. Well, in that case, Jim, that's actually a good, really good point because that brings in the retaliation idol part of Jesus. Is that it, the sure. truth? Is I want that Jesus, you know, because he's going to get the people I hate. So, so now I, but, but see. Oh, but Lauren, we don't, we don't hate anybody. We love everybody in the Lord. Exactly. And see what you just said, that that's exactly it is what we do. We mask our hatred by going, um, I'm going to pass it off over to Jesus. So I'm loving and I'm kind and I care for you. Oh, but you know what? I need to warn you. Jesus is going to come back really pissed off and he's going to get you. And, and so really, I'm just projecting my hatred onto onto this idol Jesus as being the one who's going to carry out what's already in my own heart towards you. So yeah. it's it, yeah. it's it's very disingenuous when we say we love people and yet we have a, a violent deity who's gonna who's gonna be getting people and that kind of 
that kind of stuff. And I'll, I'll let you know that there is almost no question that we will tackle that doesn't keep bringing us back to this kind of what does the Father of Jesus have to do with the God of Israel and that relationship. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Well, you notice how we keep ending up having to deal with it and come back to it. Why? The question was raised already in Paul's lifetime. It's part of the problem he has when he's writing to Rome. Because the interlocutors in Rome still live and do their message within this view of the election of Israel and this kind of Second Temple Jewish rhetoric about Greeks and their behavior patterns. And Paul is having to come along and say, no, you guys are all the same, all are liars. Everybody has to start from the same place, and that place is faith or trust. You know, and then, then he ends up having to say, you know, I'm going to tell you what's a mind blower. What's a mind blower is this. When God set this whole thing up, he knew that it wasn't about right, wrong, good, evil, better than, lesser than, so he declared everybody in disobedience. In order that, he might have mercy upon everybody, including upon you. Everybody. And, you know, a text like that, and then Paul goes on and he cites that Isaiah text, mind is not seen, nor can it be conceived, that God is so oriented toward everyone and everything in all space and time and creation, that the Father is for us, that love is so for us, you know? And um, when you take that, you cannot, cannot, cannot reconcile it with certain elements within the uh, Old Testament tradition. But on the other hand, you can begin to see elements of it arising, as, as, as the Father is working with this people to open them up more and more to his covenant chesed, his covenant faithfulness. And he keeps doing it, and they keep dropping the ball over and over again. Well, you know, Christianity's done the same thing for 2,000 years. And here we are today, at the end of all things, and Christianity is just as sacrificial a religion today as Judaism was in Jesus' day. Wow. I think, um, <clears throat> I think that brings us back to the topic of our discussion tonight, and, and, and that's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on Scripture. If, if I read Scripture and I don't see in it who Christ really is, then I'm not reading Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm reading it filtered through my own uh, interpretation of what I, basically of what I want it to say. Uh, I know lots of people, I know a, a pastor in our geographical area here who is, he will counter anybody who talks about the love of God with 15 or 20 of his favorite scriptures about fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God and you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, you know, and example exa after example of the earth opened up and swallowed up 300 of them. And, you know, I I'm like, brother, come on. It's like, even if that were true, is that really what the scripture teaches? What about getting into the New Testament? Well, the New Testament, this was his answer to me one time. Well, the New Testament's good. But you've got to understand, you've got to understand the Old Testament to understand what God's really like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I picked up a book last week, and I tell you, honestly, I couldn't put it down. It's entitled Fight Like Jesus by Jason Porterfield. How Jesus Waged Peace Through Holy Week. The whole book, every chapter is a different day, starting with, um, uh, starting with um, Palm Sunday. And he brings out 
stuff that I never, ever considered. Why did they use palm branches? What does Hosanna really mean? Why did Jesus tell them to, if you don't have a sword, trade your cloak for a sword, and then the same night tells them to put the sword away? And mm-hmm. I just, such a beautiful, beautiful book about the message of peace. And and, and it's interesting that if you talk about the, the bookends of, of Christ's life, you have the angelic company announcing to the shepherds that peace has come to the earth. And then you have Jesus after he rose from right. the dead, showing up in the in the room the boys were hiding out in, and the first thing he says to them is peace to you. You know? It's like the whole message of the gospel is a message yes. of peace. Yeah. It's not a message yes. of war. It's not a it's a message of and this is what uh, Jason Porterfield brings out in the book. It is a message of its time that the church beats their swords into plowshares. Amen. Yeah, indeed. That's um, that's elemental and foundational. That sounds like an excellent book. I just wrote the name of the, the writer down, Jim. What's the title again? Fight Like Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to pick that up. I remember, oh, it's been 10, 12 years now. Uh, I had started a, a book I titled Lamb Up, the Resurrection Gospel, and and my argument was precisely that, uh, that when Jesus comes and he says, Shalom, um, he's actually coming as, as the future Christ. He's the mm-hmm. future coming to the present. And so I said, the Shalom is, is the eschatological promise that, that everything is at peace. There's, mm, where he's from, good. there is only peace. And, um, yeah, anyway, you know, we, we could and probably should ask the question, well, if, if we can't come to Scripture uh, like it's a love letter from God, if we can't come to Scripture uh, without having to learn languages and going to cemetery and everything else, well, then what use is the Bible? Why, why have the Bible? I think we need to address that. And then I think it would be important to be able to show folks the absolute brilliance of what scripture truly is and what it's doing and um i mean so i just don't wouldn't want our our friends and fans to leave thinking that we're only going to you know tear it down no because you there there is a way to approach holy scripture with the kind of reverence that, that a fundamentalist has and lauren and you know my work you know how high i hold scripture in esteem Right, you know, um, and to and and that I recognize the authority of Scripture in the church, in the church, right, right, and um, uh, we want to be able to bring people across that bridge to another view that allows them to have confidence in what the Scripture is doing, rather than confidence in Scripture as this divinely dropped Torah from heaven, this divinely dropped Quran from heaven, this divinely dropped Bible from heaven, this divinely dropped Joseph Smith tablets from heaven. I mean, okay, we've had enough of that, right? We need, we need another view. We need a view of how to interpret these holy writings, these sacred writings, so that they actually, as Jim pointed out, do the work of the Spirit. That's a really good point because it it goes all the way back to our conversation on the first podcast about deconstruction, that the purpose of deconstruction is to remove the junk so you can rebuild. And if if we just, we've been removing the junk the last uh, podcast and a half, uh, and, and if we just stay there and keep digging down, then like you said, what's the point? You know, what's okay? So the, we're reading the Bible all wrong, and this is wrong, and, and it's like. But I love how you turned it around and said, "No, no, this is because we want to move in a direction towards where the scriptures bring beauty and and uh, the life, life, and life bring life. Thanks, that's the word I'm looking for. Bring life." 
to us. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was thinking how, um, you know, you talk about your love for scripture and, and, um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people will talk about loving scripture, but it's like, I saw this movie recently that was about a chef and, there was this guy who was a critic of the chef. I mean, he adored everything the chef did, but he would critique, oh, he did this and he did that. And it turned out the guy had no clue what the chef was doing. He didn't know anything about cooking. He was just this big shot trying to put on a show and pretend he understood the chef. And and the chef just exposes him, you know, that you, you really know nothing about cooking. You just want to put on airs that you do. And, um, and, you know, I think when it comes to scripture – if you really do love scripture, you can't be afraid of where the study, and I mean the real study of scripture, like you're talking about, Michael, of understanding the languages, uh, the culture, and you can't be afraid of what that's going to take apart and then what that's going to put together differently. Mm-hmm. And And that's where I can say that, Michael, you really are someone who genuinely, like that chef, genuinely loves the scriptures and and um studies the scriptures because you have removed that that boundary from yourself if you will that cage that so many christians put themselves in of i can i can only go this far or i can only accept these parameters where it's like if if you're really tasting food you can't go well i will not i will not acknowledge the existence of cinnamon you know, it's like you have to acknowledge every ingredient that is in there if you're going to truly be one who appreciates food. And it's the same thing with the scriptures. If you're really going to appreciate what they say, then guess what? You have to be willing to go down some roads that are going to make you very uncomfortable. But that's the very mark of somebody who does love scripture, not the opposite. So what and are you guys' thoughts on that? You're- well, I appreciate what you're saying, Lauren, and Michael, too, um, that you don't have to devote yourself to 50 years of in-depth, deep dive in order to gain an appreciation for Scripture. But you do have to make some paradigm shifts in order to really, uh, you know, get get what's being said, let's put it this way, to to uh, discover the real Jesus, if you will. Will the real Jesus please stand up? You know, it's like, you know, and, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that uh, a person just starting out in their faith can take the Bible... And with with very little instruction, really, having a, a deep appreciation for it and get out of it what it is the Spirit wants to teach them out of it. And uh, I, I think, so, Michael, your suggestion here that we kind of shift gears a little bit, I think is well taken, and I think uh, it, it would be good. Why don't you go ahead and kick us off in that direction then? Well, okay. So if 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 we are comfortable at this point acknowledging that the entire Protestant theory of inspiration doesn't work, um, the choices we have are to say, oh, well, then man wrote the Bible and I don't have to pay any attention to it. You can do that. Um, the universities have kind of taken that position with regard to Scripture for the last couple hundred years. Uh, and... Um, uh, the Bible is no longer even a significant classic, you know, where it's it's taught as part of the great literature of the West. And when you add to that biblical illiteracy in the church, um, uh, you essentially have, whether religious or non-religious, a tossing of Scripture, as it were. The one says it's not authoritative, the other says it is, but neither really engage it or pay attention to it and let it speak. When we follow the trajectory of the early church, we we ask, okay, what was the gospel in the early church? What was the message of the gospel in the first century? The earliest texts we have are those of Paul, whose message to the Gentiles, and we are all Gentiles, all of us, begins with, Calvary. Now, that's loaded. 
because again, Protestants as well as Catholics, as well as Greek Orthodox and others, have loaded up Calvary with atonement theories that are not true to the to to the event. Okay. Um, but it is this Jesus Christ crucified event that functions as the absolute authoritative lens by which we will understand the life of Jesus and through him the character of the Father, the one he calls Father. And thus, we will have a new, new, brand new, like as in, behold, new creation, new understanding of, of God. That's what the cross brings us. It shows us that God is only merciful. That's what it shows us, that God is only love, that there is no shadow of turning, there is no dark side to God. That's what the gospel message is. God is only good, only. We can't deal with that, so we have to clutter it up and crud it up with our stuff. But the revelation of the gospel is right there. Now, that is shot through both testaments, okay? And it's done, it's done in a very specific way, and it, it helps us to, it helps on two levels. Number one, this revelation is a revelation of the character of the creator of the universe, the one that we we call God, or we use that term for. But it is also a revelation of ourselves, not just simply as, quote, sinners, unquote, but as liars and murderers. We hide from each other, we deceive each other, we hurt each other, and we lie about it, and we kill each other, and we lie about it. And Scripture is seeking to get us to, to reveal the, the blackness of our hearts. Every single one of us, every one of us, you know, and, um, and in so doing, it gives us a model, Jesus, who is imitating the Father of how to live in relationships that are truly divine because they're merciful and forgiving and compassionate and so on. That, for me, gives Scripture great power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's outstanding. Yeah, there's there's a lot there um, because it's, you know, we, you mentioned, we used the term earlier, Christ-centric, but it's like it's really Christ crucified centric mm-hmm. starting at the cross where um it, but yeah it changes the, the whole lens through which we we look at everything I mean cuz you even in what you just said you you alluded to Genesis I don't know if uh, listeners you picked up on that he was just talking about Genesis there when he said it's through the whole scripture because he talked about us being liars and covering up and you know he just went right to the garden and uh, but but I want people to pick up on that because um it shows how when you read through the lens of the cross, it, you bring life. It, it brings life. Um, and, well, and you, it both, the, the gospel does two things. Luther recognized it. The gospel slays and makes alive. Yeah. It mm-hmm. kills and it makes alive. That's good. Yeah. Which, which someday... I'll go ahead, that is, that is Well, that is being born again. We die and we yes. resurrect. And... Yeah. Uh, you know, what you're saying about being liars and murderers, uh, you know, I find it, I don't know if funny is the right word, but but when people say, you know, I sought God all my life. You know, I, I was glad the day I found Jesus. And it's like, wait a minute. You didn't seek God all your life, number one, and you didn't find him. He found you know, he, you know, yeah, he, he, he drew you to himself. He, Amen. You, you weren't seeking him. You were seeking a God made in your own image, you know, and uh, you weren't seeking God. It's like, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, none of us sought after God. And, uh, you know, and we You can't. know, let me ask you this. You ever yeah. read First John? Yeah. You ever read First John? I have. Guy, guy, the guy does all that beautiful stuff, you know, about God is love and God is light. And, and, you know, he, he, he does the stuff about, you know, the uh, 
the group that didn't want to recognize Jesus in the flesh, why they left. And you know, do you know what the last verse is? Doesn't come to mind right the minute. Little children mm. flee from idols. Flee from idolatry. Yeah. What? Why? Yeah. Why is he talking about? He's yeah. talking to a little small Christian congregation. What kind of idolatry would they have to flee? Jesus idolatry. Yeah. Hmm. Jesus's. Wow. Yeah. And and you know I I love how he you know he goes right down to the uh, to the um, core of the issue. If you say you love God, but don't love your brother, you're a liar. That's right. And it, it it's yeah. I won't get on that. <laughs> I, I well, could jump on that one. <laughs> A lot, but I'll leave it alone. <laughs> well, we should jump. We should jump on it, Jim, because um, the other thing it says, in addition to being a liar, is that we are a murderer like Cain. Yes. And and yes. Christian. No, I don't know very many Christians that want to go. You know. You know. I I might do a few bad things. I might have some bad sexual thoughts. I might drink too much here. But that they're they're all doing their little mortal venial. 14th century Catholic sinless, you know, right? Yeah. They don't understand. I really about wasn't sinless. that. I really wasn't that bad. But yeah. according to scripture, right. I am a sinner. So yeah, right, I guess right. I needed a savior. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> people like, with their little, they, they, they think their personal peccadilloes are, are a sin to yeah. God. You know, they're, they're absurd. Um, yeah. Uh, are you the voice that would have stood out in the crowd saying, no, release Jesus, kill Barabbas. I don't think so. <laughs> no, 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 no. You nope. probably would have been the one crying the loudest, crucify I, I have too much evidence in my own life just from uh, past experiences showing that I was a scapegoater. Yeah. So that so what you're saying Michael and I and I appreciate that I really I really do you're saying that when we start we're basically where Paul starts with the cross with a proper understanding of the cross starting there actually gives us the appreciation that we should have for scripture Yes where do where do most people want to start. Um, most people don't know where to start, so they start wherever their church teaches them. Okay. You know, and um, uh, whether it's eschatology, you know, whether it's uh, apologetics and the Josh McDowell kind of, I can prove the Bible's the Bible. Sure. You know, um, I, I mean, I, I found it fascinating in, in the movie uh, The Jesus Revolution where Chuck Smith's, uh, with Kelsey Grammer plays Chuck Smith. He's, he and Lonnie are both constantly holding up the Bible, going, and they start the Word of God. You this know, is the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 the the group, the Jesus movement. I remember that that when we came to the Bible, we treated it with like it meant something. Mm-hmm. You know. We weren't using it to proof text and doctrinal bullshit. It was, it, especially the Jesus story was, but changing our lives. It, yeah, it was. And, and, and in that movie, when he holds it up, how many people have their Bibles? Everybody. Yeah, oh yeah. And you're right. It's like, perhaps... A, a, a bit overboard, you know, in in worshiping it, and I and I say worshiping it with a with a, a lowercase w. Yes. But uh, but still, um, what you're saying to have that type of a a spirit anointed um, respect for the revelation of Christ through the Scripture. I know there's a lot of people that want to start, for instance, they want to start with the resurrection. Well, my Jesus, you know, you want to put Jesus on the cross, and my Jesus isn't on the cross. My Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's like, yeah, 
I get that. But Paul, in, 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 in one scripture, says, I'm determined to know nothing else except Jesus and him crucified. Yes. We have to start. You have to start at the beginning of the story, you know, and the story doesn't start with the resurrection. No, I'm glad for the resurrection. What's that? It doesn't start with the incarnation either. No, no, no. But uh, I'm I'm in agreement with you, but go ahead and, and build on that just a little bit. The gospel always begins with the uh, cross. When it, I mean, um, I, I would say, I would say if um, you're Jewish, uh, then yeah, the gospel can begin with the virgin birth stories. But for Gentiles, it begins with the cross. Um, the, there's just so many questions about the virgin birth narratives that we won't even go into. But the, with the cross, you're dealing with an actual event of what? An innocent person, Jesus is innocent, dying at the hands of religious authorities and governing authorities. Mm-hmm. Okay? And we know from the trial sequence that he's innocent. We also know from the trial sequence he was completely and utterly betrayed, um, uh, especially from inside his own circles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we have here uh, a, a blatant example of a mis miscarriage of justice we 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 can see it loud and clear absolutely okay and then the, the then the resurrection as you pointed out there is no retributive god they were expecting one correct but because the, the other words out of Jesus mouth in addition to shalom are don't fear don't have no afraid. fear you know, we can put that together. We can then be, we can really tease out every major Christian doctrine in a healthy framework, a healthy web. Mm -hmm. Because that's the way you construct Christian doctrine is more like a spider does a web or a net. If you try to do it propositionally, you're not constructing doctrine, you're just constructing boredom. I think we really have laid out enough for for our listeners and our friends to really weigh out and 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 to consider hey well guys this has been fantastic and uh, to all our listeners out there we'll be back again next week until then we'll uh, have a great week and we'll see you next time <laughs>